I'm Anne Kadmu with UN News. Survivors of terrorist atrocities in the Lake Chad region of Africa have been telling UN News about how they have been able to overcome the horror of kidnapping and being forced to watch their own close family members being executed. Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced and many thousands killed across the region over the past decade or so as a result of a terrorist insurgency which continues to this day. For this special edition of our Ladies On podcast, Daniel Dickinson traveled to the northeast of Cameroon to meet two survivors of terrorism who are trying to rebuild their lives following the unspeakable acts committed against them and their families. St. Joseph's Church in the village of Zamai in the far north region of Cameroon in Africa's Lake Chad region. The pastor delivers his homily on peace and acceptance in French, which is then translated into a local language. Several hundred people, many women dressed in elegant and colourful robes, their children in their Sunday best, are lined up along benches in this cavernous and airy building. As if on cue, a dove flies through the rafters high above the priest as the congregants unite in Christian prayer and thanks. One woman in the congregation is especially glad to be alive today. Her name is Wala Matari. We spent two years suffering like this. A few people tried to escape, but they were captured and later died from their injuries. They would have their ears, breast, or a limb cut off, and they would be left to die in the bush. God is great. He never sleeps. And it is by his divine grace that I escaped this hell. I'm Daniel Dickinson, and in this special Lid is On podcast from UN News, I'm in northeast Cameroon, where I've been talking to two victims, two survivors of terrorist atrocities, two individuals from separate countries with different backgrounds and distinct religions who have both suffered unspeakable torment, heart-rending indignity and unimaginable fear at the hands of terrorist fighters. Both, somehow, despite the adversity they faced, say they've been able to find hope and healing through family and religion. Wala Matari is 29 years old and married with six children. She says her husband is unable to contribute much to family life as he suffers from mental health problems. Every Sunday, she walks the dusty paths which crisscross the parched and sparsely vegetated landscape of Zamai to bring her children to this Catholic church. I go to church to drown my sorrows, to move on from the bad memories. We sleep better after hearing the word of God. After church, I am happy to be alive. It is calming to reflect on the sermon, the words of praise and the dancing. We forget all the suffering we have endured. Wala Matari has plenty to forget. Six, 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 
I catch up with her following a literacy class where she and other people who have faced years of poverty, only then to be displaced by terrorist activities, are finally getting the opportunity to learn to read and write, thanks to the support of the UN Development Programme. As she slumps in a plastic white seat, I immediately notice a haunted look in her face, very different from the smiles and joy she displayed at church earlier in the day. She gesticulates, sometimes in a frantic way, throwing her hands upwards, almost cradling her head as she recounts past acts of barbarity committed against her. She describes the Wednesday night in 2014 when armed insurgents attacked her village of Zelevet in the far north region of Cameroon. They came in the middle of the night. I was asleep with my husband and children. They surrounded our neighborhood. They were in front of my house. I had shots. You can tell the difference between shots fired by the army and shots fired by the terrorists. The men who came were covered from their fingers to their toes. She and her children were taken hostage. At the time, she had four sons. She tells me how she tried to disguise the boys in girls' clothes in order to try and hide them, stuffing their shirts to make it look as though they had breasts. She knew that they would probably be recruited into the ranks of the insurgents, or worse, just executed on the spot. Her plan didn't work, and the boys were discovered by the men who had broken into her house. They told me, you tried to deceive us by telling us that your children are all girls, but we found out that they are boys, so they will help us fight. We will train them. They will learn to use guns and they will join us. I told them I acted that way out of fear not to lose my children. They started torturing us. They mistreated us. They didn't give us food or water. We wanted to escape, but the enemy was everywhere and nobody could leave. We had a hard time. They gave us dry maize, which we were forced to eat raw since we were hungry. They beat me with sticks so that I miscarried. I was raped and conceived several times, but I miscarried each time because of suffering. I was beyond suffering. I suffered without food. I couldn't feed my children. I saw my brothers, my cousins, my friends killed before my eyes. Her brother and his sons, her nephews, had their throats cut in front of her, an act of almost unimaginable cruelty. It's become the modus operandi of armed insurgents in this part of Africa, the typical way they terrorise and subjugate civilians in their path. While Amatari spent two years in the bush in northeast Nigeria with the fighters, living in fear of her life and the lives of her terrified children, never knowing how and when they would be tormented. My children were scared because the men came at night time, never during the day. They were masked, so we couldn't see their faces. They played with us, they would mistreat us, beat us. They made me break millet by hand. We didn't have a mill to ground it. Sometimes they would give us rough stones to ground maize mixed with sand, and sometimes they would force us to chew it raw. We would also eat wild fruits, but they were acidic and sour. She knew, despite the obvious risks, that she had to escape. We spent two years suffering like this. 
A few people tried to escape, but they were captured and later died from their injuries. They would have their ears, breast, or a limb cut off, and they would be left to die in the bush. God is great. He never sleeps. And it is by his divine grace that I escaped this hell. Seeing all that, me and my children, we were afraid to try to escape. They would kill us like all the others. One Wednesday, armed men attacked, and with their help, we escaped. We passed through several villages over the two days. At daytime, we would hide in caves without making noise out of fear of being captured. At night, we would continue walking with the armed men. That is how, thanks to God, we managed to escape this ordeal. Wala Mattery again there, telling her extraordinary story for this special edition of the UN News' podcast series, The Lid Is On. The family's escape led to Zamai in northeast Cameroon. Originally a village, Zamai has grown into a small town following the arrival of people like Wala Mattery, who have been displaced by terrorist activity. Some 2,270 people who have fled their homes in other parts of the region live side by side in small, now semi-permanent shelters made of mud and brick. They're covered in the white plastic sheeting provided by the UN refugee agency, UNHCR. The telltale marker of the displaced in Cameroon, the Lake Chad region and indeed across Africa. This is an impoverished part of the continent where one out of three people, some 1.5 million, are not getting enough to eat. So life is tough at the best of times. Just five miles down the road from Zamai is another community of displaced people. But these are not Cameroonians. They're Nigerian refugees who have fled across the nearby border in search of safety and security, hoping to remain out of the deadly reach of insurgent groups. They live in Minawa refugee camp, which, unlike Zamai, is an established camp, specifically set up to offer shelter to those fleeing life-threatening terror. The shelters are lined up in neat rows in a grid system, and perhaps partly because of that, the camp has a more established and organised feel than Zamai. Trees have also been planted to provide shade and improve an overall environment degraded by climate change and unsustainable farming. Schools and health centres have also been opened. The refugees have been here longer than the displaced Cameroonians down the road, reflecting the more entrenched history of terrorist attacks in Nigeria compared to Cameroon. There are now around 53,000 people living in Minawau, and many tell a similar story to Walamateri's. This is the home of Mohamed Lawangoni, the dozen or so animated alabaster-coloured sheep that he's feeding in his small compound are an indication of his former wealth. He used to work as a local government tax official in the small town of Banki, 60 miles to the north of Minawau, and just on the Nigerian side of the border with Cameroon. In his pinstriped white Muslim jalabaya and standing over six feet tall, surrounded by two wives and ten children, Mohamed Lawangoni cuts an imposing and proud figure. 
The story about his abduction is depressingly similar to Wallamatteri's and consistent with many of the testimonies I've heard from a wide range of people in the far north region of Cameroon. Whenever they came, they came on motorcycles, normally around 4 to 5 in the morning. They would shoot randomly. All of us would run. And they would burn the houses. Oh, there were many people slaughtered. There were up to 60 people. They would just grab them, tie them, remove their clothes, slaughter, and toss their bodies away. Mohamed Lawangoni was one of the lucky ones. He and his family survived the ordeal of an initial attack. But the terrorists returned. There were four that came in, all of them with guns. They broke the door of my house and captured me and took me to the bush. Two of them were from our town and the other two were from Maiduguri. They let my family go, but they later came back and took my mother. They said I was an infidel. They robbed us of our property, even our shoes. The two abductors from his hometown were just teenagers, perhaps just 15 years old. He'd known them since they were young boys and had watched them grow up in the peaceful, if impoverished, surroundings of Banky Town. Now they were standing in front of him, wanting to slit his throat and cast his body into the bush. Mohamed Lawangoni told me he'd heard that one of the young men had been killed in fighting. I asked the former civil servant what he'd say to the other man, were he to meet him today. I would ask him, why did you humiliate me like this? You burned my house, you abducted me, you tied up my hands, you brought out a knife to slaughter me, even though you knew me. You slaughtered others in my presence. Why did you do that? Mohamed Lawangoni doesn't know why he was not killed on that day, although he does remember the four men receiving a telephone call. Three of them immediately left on a motorbike, leaving the fourth to guard the Nigerian tax inspector. Three of the men left on a motorbike and one man remained. When he went to use the toilet, I ran and then I fell into a nearby river. I didn't climb out. The river was so deep. The following day, I made my way to Cameroon. Mohamed Lawangoni arrived in Minawau in August 2014. It was always supposed to be a temporary solution to a life-threatening situation. But now, after four healthy children have been born here, I asked whether he could foresee a return to Nigeria. First, we need peace in order to go and see the state of our houses, our farms that were burnt to the ground. If they tell us that normalcy has returned to Nigeria, we will go. If not, we will remain here till our death comes. Like fellow victim and survivor Wala Matari, 
It is a deeply felt religious faith that sustains Mohammed Lawangoni. As a Muslim, he prays with his family. His sons, daughters, two wives and mother kneel behind him on light blue and black woven mats as he invokes Allah. And I wondered whether he could forgive the young man who terrorized him and his family and the other terrorists who have destroyed his community. If they repent, I will forgive them. But only Allah can judge us. Back at Zamai village, it's Sunday afternoon, and Wala Matari has returned from the literacy class to her small home. Some 20 to 30 men are waiting for her there, huddling against the red mud walls of her house in search of shade. They're waiting to be served Billy Billy, a local beer that she's brewed herself. It's made of red millet and water and has been fermenting over three days. She's selling a calabash of beer, a bowl-shaped container made from the gourd of a calabash tree for 100 CFR. That's around 20 US cents. And business is good. I am making the millet beer so that I can feed and clothe my children. Before, I looked for old clothing and plastic to cover them up. I also buy soap and take care of my husband who is mentally ill. My children and I, we lived in extreme poverty. With my millet beer, I am fighting for my family. Life remains challenging for Wala Matari and her family. She complains of not receiving the same humanitarian supplies that her neighbours benefit from, although the millet beer business was started with a grant from the UN Development Programme in Cameroon. Generally, she is positive about the future, despite the horrors she's witnessed and personally endured. Now, I think of the future. The past is past. If you dwell upon it, it will easily upset you. So, as long as we have a little something to eat, we must be hopeful. I have this little business and I am content. Before, I was dirty with no proper clothes and I didn't want to leave. What kept me going was having my children with me. On Sundays at church with her children, it's clear Walamatari feels some sense of community and with that, a way to move on from the past. I ask her the same question I put to Mohammed Lawangoni. Could she forgive the people who perpetrated so much violence and suffering against her and her family? If I ever come face to face with a Boko Haram fighter, and if I have strength and a knife in my hand, I will cut his throat and spill his blood. Because it makes me sick whenever I remember the suffering I went through. It's late in the afternoon and the sun is dipping across the dusty landscape. As supplies of the millet beer dwindle, the men slowly disperse and Wallamatari clears up behind them. She's earned enough to buy food and other provisions for her family and to buy millet for the next batch of beer, which she'll brew tomorrow and sell on Thursday. Like Mohammed Lawangoni, her future is unclear, a future fashioned out of the volatility, terror and brutality which continues to sweep across this impoverished region of Africa. 
For both, faith appears to provide an anchor to everyday normality, a human bond and a reminder of the intrinsic goodness of people. It no doubt also gives them strength to continue despite past tragedies and future uncertainties. I'm Daniel Dickinson, and you've been listening to a special edition of the Lid is On podcast from UN News from here in Africa's Lake Chad region. Thanks for joining me. You can read more about these extraordinary personal stories of survival and see photographs and video by going to the UN News website. That's news.un.org. Thank you.